Nexa, formerly known as Answer One, is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for law firms. Learn more by giving them a call at 800-267-9371 or online at nexa.com. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello and welcome to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels podcast. I'm Jason Taché, a legal affairs writer at The Journal. Today we're talking about diversity, or the lack thereof, in legal technology. And now we're not talking about diversity of apps or platforms, but of the people in the field itself. To do that, I'm joined today by Kristen Sande, a co-founder of the pro bono platform Paladin. Kristen, thank you for being with us today. So I first came to your work back in the spring of 2018 when you released a report that showed women and people of color make up 13.6% and 26.5% respectively of legal technology company founders. I'm curious in the last year and a half, are there any updates to this research from 2018? So I would love to do a refresh completely of that initial data set and the analysis Um, in the near future. But unfortunately, most of the updates have been anecdotal over the past year and a half. And that's actually one of the reasons why I started researching this topic was because I looked around and 2017 was kind of hailed as the year of the woman in legal tech based on a few high profile acquisitions and hires, but it wasn't really consistent with my experience in the legal tech community as a female founder. So I was looking for a data-backed study of diversity in legal tech and found that there wasn't a lot written on it. So I decided to research um, over 270 companies across the field, uh, look into their founders' backgrounds and histories, and really form a comprehensive picture of what diversity looked like. And so it seems you came to this research already with a sense of what you might find. I'm curious, did the results that you find reinforce what you had been living yourself personally as a female minority founder, or did you find something new in the data that you collected? So the research was consistent with my personal experience, although I'd say it was still pretty alarming. I mean, legal and technology are traditionally considered to skew kind of white, male, so I didn't expect there to be a whole lot of representation in legal tech as we combined them both. But considering that women did make up under 15%, which is under even tech industry standards of about 17%, and then Black and Latinx founders specifically comprise only about 5% of founders, the results were really striking. So since then, I think, you know, we have made progress in that we have begun this broader conversation when after I did that study, I populated a list of about 50 female founders that I'd come across in my research. Since then, we've uncovered about 25 more. And we're seeing a lot more progress, again, anecdotally uh, around these women's progress. So this year, for example, we've had a few high profile acquisitions. So Janine Sickmeyer at Next Chapter. Haley Altman at Doxley. We've had women like Christina Jones at Court Buddy who closed $6 million in her Series A. So we're really starting to see women, I think, achieve success and build successful, scalable businesses at a faster pace now than we have in the past, which to me is really exciting. 
I think regardless of the area we're talking about, when the diversity discussion comes up, there's always some pushback that can be generally summed up as, so what? Like, what's the harm that there isn't greater representation in whatever field it is we're talking about? I'm curious to what your response is to that type of critique. Of course. So statistically, female founders in general traditionally produce greater investment returns, they decrease design bias, which in legal is incredibly important, and they generally build more diverse teams. So from a business perspective, women are a great investment. And then on the product side, we also bring valuable skills like emotional intelligence and empathy that might get left behind otherwise that help inform how a product is going to be both built and then deployed. And especially as we think about how you know there are more women and men entering law school now and the consumer base is starting to skew more diverse, it's really important that we have those voices at the table as the future of the industry is really being shaped to help inform how those solutions are being, again, built and deployed. I wonder on that point, this idea that, uh, you know, women bring these different attributes or different views to a company, you know, perhaps no male founder right now is receiving more criticism than Mark Zuckerberg, but his second in command, his COO is uh, Sheryl Sandberg. And she seems to be um, catching a lot of the similar criticism. I'm curious how you're reading uh, the news right now in regards to this criticism of Facebook and its leadership around the various issues that it's catching flack for and and where Cheryl may be making a positive impact or maybe uh, maybe not. That's a great question. So, so I think the most important thing about these issues coming to light is the fact that we are having these conversations and we can take steps forward to correct them. So at the end of the day, the CEO drives the culture of the company. And so the buck has to stop with him or her. And then his leadership team has to help inform and reinforce those values. So I often do feel and find that, you know, women get held to a bit of a higher standard than men. You can take the example of the WeWork CEO right now who's being essentially bought out for um, billions of dollars, even though um, the company is in a pretty precarious situation right now for a number of reasons. So we're held to very high standards and need to deliver 10x what our male counterparts have to. Um, At the same time, the fact that we are having these conversations, promoting more women into these positions, encouraging more women to get into tech, I think is really the first step in helping kind of round out that leadership perspective and hopefully help correct some of the behavior moving forward. And so you mentioned there the the expectation on female founders when it comes to uh, funders and what their return needs to look like for them to be seen as viable. And I'm curious, when I talk to venture capital folks, they always like to talk about how they bet on people as opposed to a particular idea or a particular piece of software when they make an investment. Um, But it seems based on the research that you've done in the legal technology space that the venture capital world isn't taking bets on minority and female founders. So one, I'm curious if that read of the situation is correct based on what you see. Um, And then second, you know, how, how does this even begin to get solved? So I don't think they're actually mutually exclusive. I think that people do invest in teams and people, venture capitalists, but I think that they also invest in teams and founders that feel familiar to them. 
And considering that the lion's share of venture capitalists and funders are white, they're men, that's going to inform um, who they feel comfortable with in investing. The other thing is pattern recognition. If we're continually only investing in white male-founded startups, then those are the ones who are going to be successful and they're going to reinforce that pattern. So only by increasing diversity among funders and then hopefully increasing diversity in the folks that we're investing in will we start to change the pattern recognition of what success looks like and highlight how diverse founders can build sustainable, scalable businesses. And then that will hopefully equal the playing field in terms of who's getting investment across the board. So collectively, you and your co-founder at Paladin, Felicity Conrad, are female minority immigrant founders. And I am very curious to hear in this world, as you've discussed and have quantified, uh, that is very uh, white and male, if you were given advice early on in your journey with Paladin from other white male founders, from white male uh, venture capitalists that you realized either needed to be tweaked or completely forgotten because your experiences as uh, female minority founders were just uh, so far different than what some of your white male colleagues may have experienced? So two things that I think non-diverse founders take for granted is number one, when they step into a room, especially when they're surrounded with folks who look like them and VCs who look like them, is that their expectations for success and delivering results are kind of assumed off the bat. And we don't have that same recognition. The second is that women and diverse founders tend to not have access to the same networks as other groups based on historically who has been funded in the past and who's been successful. So for us, it's incredibly important to find allies who can open doors for us, make introductions, and it's really important for us to build sustainable business that demonstrates traction, demonstrates the ability to increase revenue so we can bring with us our business case in addition to that founding team that uh, might be exciting to a VC but not necessarily sufficient. That's interesting. So then to ask that question, maybe a slightly different way, do you, I'm sure now as your star has risen in the field and you've been able to raise the money that you have and receive the press coverage you have, that more people are reaching out to you as they start this journey. And I'm curious, maybe how you would approach advice to another minority female founder that maybe you wouldn't think to tell uh, a white male founder. Sure. So I think really the biggest thing is focusing on expanding your network and focusing on growing the business. So I've known a lot of um, male friends who have raised a lot more money than Paladin on a lot less traction than we have. And so focusing on you know really building the business, getting revenue in the door early, and being able to demonstrate a strong business model is going to be especially important in ways that it's not for other folks. And then another piece of advice that I always give is to just take the meeting. So you never know who is going to be that one ally that can open the door to so many other potential investors or customers or teammates in the future. So really being proactive about expanding your network, reaching out to folks. I'll get a a number of cold outreaches on LinkedIn or via email, and I try to respond to as many as possible because even that one introduction or connection can really mean the difference between success and failure. And I want to make sure that we're optimizing for as many of those conversations as possible. 
So we've been focusing a lot on, on the founders and the funders in the legal technology space, but I was curious your thoughts on the consumer as well. Uh, do you think as you know, lawyers and firms look at various technologies that they may be adopting in the future, that they should be thinking about the makeup of the founding team or the companies that they are working with? And if so, why should they be considering that as a factor? So I think it is important that consumers understand who is building the products that they're going to be using to make sure that we're eliminating as much design bias as possible and drawing from different experiences and perspectives in both building and scaling the tools in a way that's going to be most accessible and effective for a large pool of users. More with Kristen Sunday in a moment, but before, a message from our sponsors. If you're missing calls appointments, and potential clients, it's time to work with Nexa Professional. More than just an answering service, Nexa's virtual receptionists are available 24-7 to schedule appointments, qualify leads, respond to emails, integrate with your firm software, and much more. Nexa ensures your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-267-9371 or visit them at nexa.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. And we're back. Before the break, we were talking with Kristen Sunday about what consumers should be considering in the diverse makeup of founding teams for companies they may want to do work with. And Kristen, within that answer, and you mentioned this before, you, you talked about design bias. I was wondering if you could take a moment and explain what that is and the potential pitfalls of it in the legal technology space. Of course. So design bias is the tendency for someone's personal experience and perspective to affect the design and ultimately the implementation of a certain solution. And so that may affect how accurate and efficient a tool is going to be in the marketplace. And so outside of law, we've seen a couple examples of, for example, AI not being able to recognize women's voices uh, recruitment tech subconsciously discriminating against keywords in women's resumes, hardware, for example, being designed and tested only on men at women's expenses. And so we really have to consider how diverse founders are driving the building and implementation of these solutions, especially as purchasing decisions and rollouts within law firms and more broadly are also becoming more diverse themselves. Uh, within legal, one example I'd highlight is how we consider AI and algorithms in criminal justice. So one example is in criminal arrest. So we'll build algorithms based on historical data about prior arrests to predict which neighborhoods might have a higher propensity for crime, for example. And then that information, which is going to be somewhat distorted because of the initial data fed into it, might inform um, or might send more police to a certain neighborhood and thus end up making more arrests. So we end up with a cyclical problem. Another example that I've come across recently and that was in the news was around facial recognition in law enforcement. There was a recent MIT Media Lab study that found this um, technology to be 99% accurate on identifying white men, but often misidentified the gender uh, almost up to 35% of the time, I believe, um, when viewing images of darker-skinned women. And so the effects of how we are deploying and then using this technology, especially if it's been designed by and trained on 
a really specific demographic is going to have second and third order consequences that are suboptimal for for justice. That's interesting. So we, we write about those topics a lot at the journal, and I've covered both of the topics that you just mentioned. I'm curious um, to maybe make a short aside. Um, you, you mentioned the feedback loop uh, that's created by using criminal record data in artificial intelligence used to deploy police resources, as well as the training data issue with uh, facial recognition and showing racial bias as much as American facial recognition companies struggle to identify black faces. It's sometimes Chinese companies have been shown that they're very good at identifying uh, Asian faces, but struggle with white faces, for example. So this is clearly like a training data issue and not necessarily a, um, uh, a, a and also a diversity issue, as you point out. But I'm curious maybe to take a step back like are these diversity issues per se or should we be just like flat out reconsidering whether or not these technologies should be deployed regardless of the diversity of the team that's a really good question and i i think that unless you build a product that kind of is well represented and very thorough in eliminating design bias then it's it's hard to decide whether or not it should be implemented right so its success is only going to be as strong as the inputs. And so starting with the diverse team up front and eliminating as much of the design bias as possible on the front end is going to um, encourage stronger and more fair and, and accurate results on the back end. So I think it does have to start with creating diverse teams up front to address issues around access to justice and being able to work with those communities hand in hand to roll them out in an intelligent way is really important to ensure their success and fairness. So that community feedback point, I think, is important. And you wrote on the business side, or rather did an interview recently with Forbes, where you talked about this uh, from a client feedback perspective, which I think I have a lot of similarities for the private and public sector, respectively. Um, and in that piece, you talked a lot about how the importance of client feedback and how it helps you decide as a company uh, what directions to take. Uh, one thing I'm always interested in people that are champions of user-centered design and, and incorporating this type of client feedback is as a leader of the company, like how do you balance the role of, of leading and making a decision, but also then being pushed in particular directions by this client feedback? That's a great question. It's really hard. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to realize that, you know, we our expertise is in the technology side. And the experts that we are working to support are the lawyers, are the legal aid organizations, ultimately the clients who are getting in Paladin's instance pro bono help at the end of the day. And without incorporating those perspectives, we're not going to be able to build a well-rounded and successful solution. That's actually one of my frustrations with access to justice tech more broadly is that oftentimes they are built in silos without really engaging the folks on the ground that they're meant to serve. And for me, it's really important to understand the cultural considerations within these communities, you know, whether it's literal access, how do people reach this technology? Uh, maybe it's a language barrier issue. You know, what considerations should we have around language accessibility? down to um, the actual you know, legal issue itself, you know, what is the easiest way to translate legal jargon into 
a format that folks in these communities can easily understand and navigate um, are all really important. And unless you have people from those demographics working through the solutions with you, it's nearly impossible to build something that's going to be efficient. So having those voices as a part of the process ongoing and really guiding product development is essential. I hear that a lot, and especially in the access to justice space for those coming at it from a more community approach. I'm curious, either based on your experience or what you're seeing, what are the approaches that work to accomplish what you're talking here when, to actually get that level of meaningful feedback from the community you're looking to impact? So I think there are a few things. Number one, just literally going into the communities and, and talking to people on the street or you know organizing an event to have folks come in and share their perspective with you is a pretty low lift way to get on the ground feedback. I used to mentor for a lean startup and one of their main principles is to get out of the building. And what that means is to literally get on the street and go talk to people about the problem that you're trying to solve and the solution. And oftentimes, you know, the, the hypothesis about the problem that you're trying to solve is not actually the biggest pain point for folks in these communities. So even starting with, you know, what are the problems that you're encountering? What are the root causes of those problems? And then starting to work through potential solutions through their lens is really important. So either talking to folks on the ground, talking with leaders in the community, whether through schools or churches or other um, chambers of commerce or business organizations is another way. And then also talking with, I think, other companies and organizations that have done this research in the past and leveraging their data set and their information to help inform and triangulate all the perspectives you're getting is another good way to do it. And I guess going back to the the original question that kind of led us down this path, this idea of like, how do you lead while also incorporating all of this feedback? I'm curious, as you're going through this process as a, a co-founder of a company, like how do you reconcile things where maybe the mission of the company or, or the goals that you set out to build or, or to impact uh, are sometimes at odds with this feedback that you're getting? Right. It's tough because you do usually go into it with a preconceived notion of what you should be building and why. But at the end of the day, you do have to be responsive in terms of your product and your roadmap in terms of what you're building so that you are helping optimize for what the community needs at the time. And that might change over time. And you might have to reprioritize based on urgency or importance in certain areas. Um, we've certainly seen over the past few years, a few different areas of law you know, pop in terms of needs more than others. And we need to be adaptable and agile in being able to address those at any time. And that's actually one nice thing about being a startup is you do have flexibility to move as quickly as possible from you know, one need to another um, without too much friction. One of the things that your research found back in 2018 that I thought was interesting was uh, while generally in legal technology, the percentage of minority and female founders was low, you did happen to find a higher proportion of diverse founders in companies specifically attacking the access to justice issues themselves. Um, and the number I think you came up with was 44% uh, of founders were from a diverse background. I'm curious, like, you know, as we talk about user-centered design uh, and how some of these access to justice issues are, are popping, um, why do you think that we see 
a higher proportion of minority founders in the access to justice space as opposed to more uh, traditional, maybe business-to-business legal technology? The justice gap disproportionately affects women, immigrants, and minorities. And as you alluded to earlier, Felicity and I represent all three of those groups at Paladin. And I think in order to build a successful, well-rounded solution, you do need to be intimately familiar with the problems and the challenges that these groups face. And so, you know, having those experiences firsthand, and I'm not a lawyer, so being able to disassociate myself from the legal jargon and law school curricula and, and everything that comes with being a lawyer itself, I think is actually a huge value add and competitive advantage in that I relate more to our clients who are not lawyers. And I have, you know, my own access to justice issues, um, you know, through my background, my community, my family, um, that others in the community have for whom we're trying to build these solutions. So being able to straddle the world of tech and legal tech and also the community that you're working with and for, I think is really essential to building a holistic solution. I want to pivot a little bit to talk a little bit more about your company itself, Paladin, which is a a network to help attorneys find pro bono work. You guys are the rare for-profit VC-backed access to justice business. And and I'm curious, like having to balance both the social mission and uh, financial incentives, like how do you measure impact and return on investment? And are you treating those two things as the same or are these somewhat bifurcated uh, in the case of Paladin? So at Paladin, we find that building a successful business and increasing your impact have to go hand in hand in order for us to be sustainable and continue having the impact that we want to. So our mission is to increase access to justice by helping legal teams run more efficient pro bono programs. And so in order for us to do the former increase access, we also have to really serve the pro bono teams within firms and corporates, bar associations, working with legal services organizations to help them streamline their processes and get more folks engaged with more pro bono. So unless we're providing value to those users in a business sense, in an ROI sense, we're not going to be able to create the impact that we want to have on the justice side. Does that make sense? It does. And so how, how does that pitch go with potential funders that maybe, you know, they usually consider just merely this company will create, you know, an X return on the money that I'm putting in? Um, right. <laughs> do, you find, do, you, do you find that funders are receptive to this like, dual goal, one societal, one financial, or do you find it's a harder hill to climb up uh, on account of it? So as you alluded to, we are kind of a rare breed of VC-backed startups. And for us, it's really important to find mission-aligned investors. So we've typically worked with um, strategic partners that have backgrounds in law, or social justice, or impact, or enterprise SaaS to help us build the tech solution itself. Um, But really focusing on on folks who either come from these backgrounds, or identify with the problem, or can help us scale the impact side over revenue. That's really our focus. Something else that we think a lot about, given our mission and Felicity and my background, is working with diverse founders and VCs that focus on building diverse portfolios. 
it's really important to us to be in a network of other founders who come from these backgrounds, have similar experiences, and who we can um, share experiences and, and lift up at the same time as we continue to build our businesses. Was that approach clear to you when you started this project, or is that a lesson you learned along the way? I think Paladin, because it is so untraditional, um, we realized pretty quickly that the traditional VC that's investing in enterprise SaaS wasn't going to be a perfect fit for us. So we didn't have preconceived notions going in, but did learn pretty quickly that we should be working both for us and our mission and for the investor with folks who are well aligned with what we're doing in the justice space. And so to close out today, I, I wanted to pull everything back to the, the initial discussion around diversity and legal technology and to maybe take a big picture view of, of the landscape right now and where it may be headed. I'm curious to hear your thoughts uh, on where we go from here. If the, if the goal is to develop uh, a more diverse legal tech ecosystem uh, to make it perhaps look more like the communities that it serves, like, how does that happen? Honestly, the best thing that we can do is help to make the current female and diverse founders as successful as possible. I think that really inspires more folks to get into legal tech. It helps to change the pattern recognition of what success looks like, potentially could lead to more angel investments for diverse founders in the future. So literally, you know, buying their products, making offers and introductions for them to increase their network, investing in these companies, even if it's a small check that can go so far. And we're seeing now more and more firms have venture capital arms. So it'll be interesting to see where they put that money. Um, And then just highlighting their success. So, you know, as we're doing today, you know, we raising awareness, having the conversation, highlighting women and people of color who are doing incredible things in legal tech and access to justice and really helping to share their story and and help them be even more successful. I think we'll have a very important cascading effect on the rest of the community. Well, as these issues continue to evolve, we'd love to have you back and hear more about uh, the changes that are continuing to go on in the legal tech space. Kristen, uh, thank you very much for, for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Kristen Sunday is the co-founder of Paladin. If you're interested to learn more about what we talked about today, check out abajournal.com for our show notes and relevant links. Meanwhile, if you like what you heard, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm Jason Tache for the ABA Journal. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.